Good morning, ECC. It is such a joy to be with you all, to be together on this first unified single worship gathering. It's a momentous occasion. I think I was the one who actually preached the first Sunday, or actually service led, but now I'm preaching the first Sunday that we're gathered together. I'm going to make a plaque. I'm going to put it in my office. It's so exciting. I'm really rejoicing. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. We're continuing our work through the Psalms of Lament. And today we have uh, a unique psalm. A psalm of David. So let me read to you Psalm 38. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall. And my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. 
O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. Father in heaven, I pray on this morning, as we gather together as the body of Christ here at ECC, I pray that you would teach us, show us from your word how we are to lament over our sin, how we are to grieve over what we have done, how we've rebelled against you, and show us our only hope is truly in Christ. Remind us again this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was 10 years old, I did something very dangerous and dumb. And I still cringe when I think about it. Now, I grew up in the U.S. in a very rural area. And I have uh, three siblings. I have a twin brother, I have an older sister, and a younger sister. And we would often go to this particular part of the river and go swimming. Love to swim in the rivers in the Pacific Northwest. And our older sister had a friend with her, of course, and I wanted to go play with my older sister and her friend and be part of them, but my sister basically shunned me, said, no, you know, we're going to play alone. And so I thought it'd be funny if I reach down and pick up a rock and I throw it over my sister's head and it lands right in front of her. Man, that'd be so great because it would scare her and uh, I would show her who's boss. So being the little idiot that I was, I reached down, grabbed a rock and I threw it in a high arc and it went flying in the air and it landed right on top of my sister's head. I didn't mean to hit my sister, honestly, but I had done it. And I threw this fair-sized rock at her head, and it hit her, all because of my anger at being pushed away and my stupidity. I don't really remember what happened after that. I knew my dad was super angry. My sister's head was bleeding. And we left the river, river, and I was disciplined, and I was sent to my room. And I remember being in my room, and I had this absolute pit in my stomach. I felt so terrible. I felt so much remorse, so much sorrow. How could I have done that? How could I have thrown a rock at my sister? I could have killed her. I mean, this was a large rock. I have sinned against her and I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my family. So even to this day, I I tear up about that event. I literally bite my teeth and like, oh man, that was so stupid. And I feel this deep guilt within my gut. It truly leveled me. I want to ask you, friends, have you been in a similar situation? Have you been in that place where you know you've wronged someone, that you've messed up, and now you're racked with guilt and remorse? It's not a fun place, is it? It does not feel good to know that you've sinned greatly, And you have to feel the consequences of that sin. Well, we Christians, we will sin and we will sin grievously too. But as we're going to see in our psalm this morning, we have a great God who will hear us in our desperation over our sin. God sees us in our sin. 
our wretchedness, our brokenness. He sees us unable to help ourselves. And I want you to see this morning that God is truly our only hope when it comes to our sin. Only He can deliver us from the weight of our own iniquities. And He has done that through the death of His Son, Jesus. So this morning as we look through Psalm 38, we're again going to go through three scenes. Scene one is the sickness of sin in verses 1 through 8. Scene two is the snares of sinners, verses 9 through 14. And scene three is the salvation of the sorrowful sinner, verses 15 through 22. So scene one, the sickness of sin. David says in verse one, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. David is crying out to God, appealing to him that God would not rebuke him or discipline him in anger and wrath. Why does David feel this way? Well, what does this feel like for David? Let's ask that. It feels like God has taken arrows and shot them into David, right? This is excruciating pain, suffering, torment. How would you describe multiple arrows that have sunk into your body? That's not an accident. That's intentional. God has taken aim and hit David with arrows of affliction. The hand of the Lord has come down on David. Why is that the case? Verse 3 says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, God. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So David has incurred the wrath of God the anger, the indignation of God because of his sin. How is it possible that David, the chosen one of God, the king of Israel, whose ancestor to Christ himself, would incur this wrath? Why is it that God would treat him like this? It seems like in the first four verses, God is inflicting David with this immense pain and suffering, and yet this is the king of Israel. David knows exactly why he is truly suffering. God is the one who reigns, and there is one reason why David is incurring God's indignation. David has sinned. What sins can David be referring to? We really don't know. The psalm doesn't tell us specifically what sins we are talking about. Now, if you remember David's life, you remember the, the kinds of sins that David was wrapped up in, right? He ordered the murder of one of his most faithful warriors, Uriah, after he stole from him his wife. He ordered the census of fighting forces of Israel, a grievous sin as a king, because as the king of Israel, he's supposed to rely on God, not the size of his army. But these aren't mentioned here particularly in the psalm. I think that's intentional, that these sins aren't particularly mentioned. I think David knows ultimately that all sin is rebellion against God, whether great or small. What is sin really? What are we talking about? Are we talking about really bad things like murder and adultery, right? That's what David did. 
Those are the real sins out there, right? You and I, we just have little small things, right? Minor imperfections. Well, sin, from one theologian's definition, is any failure to, to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Let me say that one more time. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is rebellion against a holy, perfect God who created all things. And so when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, they ushered in a new era where sin reigned in the life of human beings. Humanity is now defiled through one sin totally and completely. And since God is holy and perfect, He cannot abide any sinfulness in His presence. Our sinfulness incurs the wrath of a holy God. And friends, this is humanity's problem. This is our fundamental problem. We sinful human beings deserve God's wrath. We have committed cosmic treason against the Almighty, Holy, Perfect One. And this is David's, this is why David's lament over his sin is not some colorful, fanciful, hyperbolic reaction. The weight of David's sin and iniquities is crushing. The picture of iniquities going over his head is reminiscent of waves breaking over him. David is literally drowning in the sea of his sinfulness. So look how he describes his state in verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my heart. The physical state of David is one of wasting away. His wounds are open and festering because of his own foolishness. He's wrecked by his sins, unable even to stand. He says twice, there's no soundness in my flesh. His body is literally deteriorating. He's weak, crushed, and his heart is in utter tumult. David's sin and his guilt have a crushing, debilitating, destroying effect on his own physiology. And his full heart, mind, and his body are wasting away. When I think about when I was lying in my bed when I was 10 years old, after having thrown the rock, crying with a sinking pit in my stomach, I think I felt only a small tinge of what David is feeling here. You know, I was feeling bad, even remorse, at having thrown that rock and hurt my sister and like caused all this disruption. And David is feeling the very weight of the Almighty God on his very soul. And he cries out to God with everything that he is feeling. You might be thinking, this is kind of intense. Now, this is the King of Israel. God, you, you promised that you'd keep David. You said it's through him, actually, that the Savior is going to come, that the Israel is going to last forever. There's always going to be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. How are you doing this? Why are you doing this to David? Where has the love of God gone? Well, friends, let me point to a couple things in the text that show us that God is still the loving, merciful God. First, David is still alive. 
Really, when David or when Adam or when you and I sin, we deserve in that moment to just be wiped out, destroyed, annihilated. That is the righteous, right consequence of our sin before a holy God. I deserve that when I threw that rock nearly 30 years ago. And for every sin, great and small, since. It's God's kindness. It's his forbearance with me and you and David that we don't immediately get what we deserve. And number two, God is merciful in that he is the one who allows David to become aware of his sin before God. Let me say that one more time. God mercifully allows David to become aware of his sin. That is a mercy from God. He is aware of the problem. You know, it's one thing to know that you are not perfect, that sometimes you do bad things. But to have the biblical understanding that your sin is ultimately not against other people or yourself, but ultimately against God, that is a great mercy from the Lord. He is the one who makes you and I aware of our own sin. In fact, one of the signs that you have been born again that you are a true follower of Jesus, is that you have a sensitivity to your sin. You are aware that you have sinned and you feel the proper weight of your iniquity. Let's be honest, the world doesn't know what to do with sin. Either it's a made-up social, psychological construct. Okay, you religious people, you got to deal with sin. Okay, I'm fine. I'm a good person, right? but they end up applying their own definition of moral and ethical instruction, right? Now, if you use plastic straws or fly too much or you don't have the right progressive politics, you are in sin. You don't say that, but that's what they mean. Friends, we need God to calibrate our understanding of what sin truly is, its severity, and to whom we've ultimately sinned against. And ultimately, who pays the price for that sin? Number three, finally, I think the language here is ultimately addressing God as teacher, healer, and not the final judge and giver of punishment. Don't get me wrong, I think God is the one, God clearly is the one, who will finally punish all sin. But notice David has called on the Lord, Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. He's saying, God, the one I've known, the one you've revealed yourself to be, help me. David remembers who has saved him and made a promise to him. The superscript at the beginning of the psalm says, this psalm is for a memorial offering. You know, this can be better translated as for remembrance. In other, in other words, I think this psalm is a prayer to God that he would remember David in his suffering and in his sin. God is the one who remembers his people and saves them from their sin. He may rebuke and discipline, as it says in verse 1, but he's not ultimately going to destroy his son, David. Well, scene 1 was all about the sickness physically that has come upon David. Scene 2 is now the snares of the sinner. David despite the crushing weight of his sin, he turns back to God. And this is what he says in verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. 
my sign is not hidden from you. You know, as we studied the Psalms of the men, we've seen this pattern take place, right? First, we address God. There's an address to God. Second, there's a complaint to God saying, hey, this is the problem. This is what's going on that's not right. In this case, it's David's sin. Third, there is a request. David is crying out for help. He's crying out for relief from the crushing weight of his sin. And then fourth, there is a trusting of God for his help, his provision. And in this particular psalm, we see that pattern happen this way. We have an address and a lament. An address to God and then lament. We get the request, the petition later on in scene three. The lament in scene one focused again on his physical effects of sin. The lament in scene two focuses on the relational effects of sin. Look at verse 10 with me. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, in the light of my eyes it has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. David's strength is faltering. He is losing the light of his eyes. At the very moment that he needs help, what happens? His friends, his companions, they're gone. His family have abandoned him. Can our sin have consequences at times that affects others in this way? Causes them to leave or abandon us? You know, sin is like this Rube Goldberg machine. You know those Rube Goldberg machines where they set up all these like stages and, and different like things that will happen if you just push one little marble. Sin is like that. You push the marble down and it goes through this whole long course that you don't see or weren't anticipating. Sin has that kind of consequence on our life. It keeps going and affecting different areas and different people in ways that we could not have imagined. And we assume that our sin is just our sin. We assume that we can contain it, that we can put some boundaries around sin. But you can't. That's why it's called yeast that works through the entire dough. Sin brings nothing but ruin disruption, distortion, destruction. When we sin against others, it's not just them that are affected. It's our attendant relationships around us. It's our friends, our family, members of the same body of Christ. Sin isn't just a contagion that we individually have to deal with before God. It's a destructive force that aims to divide those around us. And the only thing that will heal the destructive nature of sin is the good news of the gospel, right? That sinners repent and that the sin against forgive and thus putting to death sin. Which is why in the church we constantly practice bringing to mind our own and others' sins so that we may confess them to the Lord and oftentimes to one another and walk in repentance and be forgiven. And some of the most beautiful, unifying moments that I've ever experienced in a church is when people publicly confess their sins. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's like you're watching the power of sin be absolutely crushed in terms of what it can do among a people of God. And instead, in the moment, it's flipped and people rejoice and sin is hated and that unity is love. Friends, let me ask you, have you been through that? 
Do you feel like your sins have been truly forgiven like that? Or do you walk around trying to hide and push down a part of your past, something that happened, something you did, that you say, no one can ever know about this? My friend, let me just encourage you, until you confess and repent, until you truly give it up, you will not know that kind of peace and unity that you should as a follower of Jesus. There are times when you may sin and people wrongly don't want to be associated with you out of shame. Perhaps they perceive your sin is going to stain them. And they just want to avoid you as if you have some sort of plague. Let me just say that's sad. And it is a consequence of sin. There There are complexities here when it comes to sin and dealing with it in the church. But let us be a church that never ignores a fellow member's sin which is the very opposite of love, to ignore them and their sin. But rather, we should be eager to help restore our brother and sister to bring them to repentance. Just because we sin against one another doesn't mean we get to treat one another as pariahs, right? Somehow cut off. All of us sin and we need forgiveness from the Lord. Of course, there will be times when enemies will come in and seek an opportunity. So verse 12 says, Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. So at one point he had friends and he had companions and he had family. They've abandoned him, but who's come near? Enemies now. They've sought an opportunity. Look at David's stumble. Let's lay a snare for David. This is our opportunity to wipe him out. They want to see him go down. David was in just a situation as king of the nation. He had many who wanted to see him fall, including his own son, Absalom, right? He sought his very life. So what is the response to this? This is where David should rise up, be the king that he is, vanquish his foes, and then he's going to deal with the sin. No. David is still, under, is still a man under the weight of his own sin. Verse 13 says, I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become a man, like a man who does not hear, and whose mouth are no rebukes. David is saying, like, I can't hear this. I got nothing to say to my enemies because my body, my soul, my mind is undone. For David, his biggest problem is his own sin, not those who are trying to seek his life. He's got nothing to say back to. Him. And so while those, there are those who seek his life, those who are trying to snare him and get rid of him, David sees his biggest problem is his own sin. And so he doesn't answer his critics. He doesn't answer those enemies. He's waiting on someone else to answer for him, as we will see in scene three. So in scene one, we saw the sickness of sin. Scene two, we saw the snares of the sinners. And finally, in scene three, we see the salvation for the sorrowful sinner. David, again, will not respond to his enemies. Instead, he is going to be the, uh, he is going to the only one who can give him help. He says in verse 15, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Again, David addresses God 
expressing his confidence in the Lord. At the very bottom, when his health has failed and when the guilt has crushed him and he's weighed down and when friends and family have left him and when his enemies are laying traps for his life, what does David do? He waits on Yahweh. He waits on the Lord, the covenant-keeping God who loves him. But this word for wait here means to hope, to endure, to long for. David is clinging to the only thing that will help him in the most dire situations, God himself. As we see in verse 9, David is longing for God, both to heal him and to protect him. Yes, David has sinned against God. David has responded with anger, and God has responded with anger towards David's sin and even afflicted David with suffering because of that sin, but not to the point of death, not to the point of despair. God will bring the right amount of affliction, pain, and suffering to remind us and remind you of our need for forgiveness of our need for him. It's working for David. Only God can help David. Only Yahweh has the ability to save him. As for his enemies, David has consigned his fate to the Lord. He says in verse 16, For I said, Only let them not rejoice over me, who boasts against me when my foot slips, for I am ready to fall. And my pain is ever before me. He is ready to fall. Ready to put his own life into the hands of the living God. His concern is not answering his enemies. His real enemy is his own sin. This is what he is focused on. Which is why then in verse 18 he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Imagine David trapped, caught, his enemies surrounding him. He's got arrows in him, and his enemies have a sword to David's throat. And they ask him, what's your last words, David? And he says something like this, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. David understands what his true enemy is. It is his own sin before the Lord. And this word sorry can be translated anxious, fear, dread even. Instead of dread from his enemies who seek his life, he is, his true fears, the living God who keeps his soul. And when his enemies choose to do evil, as they choose to uh, continue in pursuing him, It says in verse 19, David will instead choose to follow after good. God is not going to let good or evil triumph over good. David is trusting God that his enemies will not triumph over him. So our psalm of lament turns from mere trusting in God to a petition for God to help in verse 21. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. David's God is the only one who can help him with his sin. He alone can forgive him of his iniquity and wash him clean. And so he cries out to God. 
Friends, is it hard for you to think about yourself as crying out to the Lord? Of going to him in lament for the sin, for the suffering, the pain that your sin has caused? Do you feel like you have to hide from God? That somehow God can't know the sin in your life? Do you implicitly feel like if you will clean yourself up, you will deal with the sin on your own and then come before God that somehow he will accept you? He won't. Because you can't cleanse yourself. You can't deal with sin on your own. You need the Lord to do that. And he knows everything you have ever done and ever will do. Maybe you're carrying this burden right now on your soul for a sin that you've committed and you feel the Lord's hand on you. Your iniquity is on your shoulder, maybe, and you feel like it's a burden that you cannot bear any longer. This is why Jesus came into the world. From the very beginning, from Adam's sin in the garden, we've, been, we've had this burden placed on us, our own sin. And it might as well be a million pounds because you're not moving it. This burden is too heavy to bear. We say that along with David. Who could possibly bear the weight of their own sin? I told you one story about throwing a rock at my sister that I embarrassed about and I cringe. I haven't told you about the million other things that I've done that wound me to the core. That unless it was Jesus who promised forgiveness, I am undone. Jesus comes to you and I and says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. No more burden. You put the yoke that Jesus says to put on you. It's not putting actual weight on you. Jesus is carrying it. You have no more burden. You are free to rest. He carries you along the way. You no longer bear that burden. He does. Friends, the crashing wave of God's wrath against sin, the arrows that were meant for you, the festering wounds that you deserved, have instead fallen on Jesus. And this is why God, in his perfect wisdom and mercy, forbear the sins of the entire world. All those thousands of years. This is why humanity has not been eradicated over the, the course of history. Every time we've sinned. Because one day, the Son of Man would come. And he would bear that burden for us. So to my non-Christian friends who have joined us this morning, we're glad that you're here. I'm going to ask you, how do you deal with your sin? What do you do with this sickness that has infected you. Maybe you don't even realize that you've, you've sinned against an almighty God. Maybe you don't realize that your sins 
are being counted. I want you to know it's a great grace that the Lord has for you that he has revealed that you have a problem. It's the first step to fixing this problem. And you cannot fix it on your own. It is a great mercy from God to have your sins revealed to you. To be made aware that you need a Savior. And here Jesus stands, his crucified, risen body, his blood poured out for yours. And if you will trust in him, if you believe in him alone, he will save you. So if you're a non-Christian here, welcome. If you want to know what it means to be forgiven of your sins, talk to any one of us here, any one of us pastors, elders, members. We'd love to tell you what it means to know and follow Jesus and be forgiven. I want to close our time this morning thinking about ways that we can lament and properly grieve our sin together. Psalm 38 shows us how to address God. We pour out our lament to Him. We confess our sin and repent. We ultimately trust in Him. And as followers of Jesus, that is the mark of a Christian life. Confession and repentance. And each of us, we must do that individually, right? We have to individually go before the Lord, confess our sin. But there's also this element of corporate lament and grief for our sin. After all, Psalm 38 is the songbook of the community of Israel. It's now the songbook of the church. And we should lament our sin corporately together. And this is why every week you will hear a pastoral prayer, like this morning you heard from Pastor Adam, that on behalf of the congregation, we confess our sin. So as you hear the prayer confession each week, and sometimes you're like, man, that doesn't apply to me. What is he even talking about? Right? What is this guy saying? What is Will talking about? What is this elder talking about? Yeah. It's not meant to capture everything. Some things may not apply to you. But search your heart and ask, Lord, where have I sinned? And together before the Lord, let's confess our sins. And then together let's hear the assurance of pardon that we have been forgiven. This sermon is not meant to find all your sin and like bring it up and like latch onto it. This sermon is meant for you to cling to the assurance of forgiveness of sins. This is meant to remind you of the severity of your sins so that when you look at the cross, you see what has been done for you by Jesus. Your new birth as a Christian means that the sinner in you was put to death. You no longer are a slave to sin, but to Christ. So when you do sin, you have an advocate, one who hears you each time you cry out to him. Jesus is our high priest who ever intercedes for us. So we can listen to this prayer of confession together. We can sit together at the Lord's table, which we do every first Sunday of the month, where we, remember, we drink the full cup, uh, we drink the cup that Christ's blood is. We remember that Christ drank the cup on for us, uh, the cup of wrath on our behalf. We partake in that supper, and we remember that we have been forgiven in Christ. And finally, we also sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs together. 
the lament and grieve our sin, just as we have this morning. And this is so, why I'm so thankful that we are meeting together at one time all together. That as a gathered church, this is where Christians should come and lament our sin. We should confess our sin. There is no other safe place on the planet than for you to admit, I have sinned. For this is where forgiveness is found in the community of faith, those who are trusting in Christ. Let us encourage one another again and again that Christ has come, that his salvation is sure, and that the penalty for our sins have been paid. So let me invite you to stand. We're going to sing in joy that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Please stand. Father in heaven, our sins, great and small, cannot be done away with by ourselves. And we want to learn from Psalm 38. We want to see how David ran to the God. He did not run from the one who thought was afflicting him. He ran to the one, the only one who could save him. And as you do afflict us, sometimes for our sin, bring us back to you. I pray that we would encourage one another, reminding each other, God is not destroying you. He is bringing you back to repentance. And I pray, Lord, as we hear and we read in your word an assurance of pardon, it is not merely some liturgical word. It is you declaring over us that we are clean, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.